In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus presents the sermon about end times. And he's answering the disciples' questions regarding the events leading to the initiation of the Messianic Kingdom. Matthew 24 verses 4 through 28 outlines God's program for the tribulation and the Messiah's return. The tribulation accomplishes two things, two purposes. Number one, it brings the times of the Gentiles to an end. And it brings Israel to repentance and restoration. The tribulation is not for the church. Scripture is clear. The church will escape the coming wrath of the tribulation. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Then he adds in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God has not destined us for wrath. And then John adds in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, recording the words of Jesus himself to the Philadelphian church, Jesus says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. We are going to be raptured. We're going to be removed before the time of Jacob's trouble, before that seven-year tribulation period uh, occurs. Now, beginning in Matthew 24 and verse 29, Jesus presents seven parables applying the truths of his return to the lives of believers, primarily the believers living in the tribulation. These parables warn those living at the end of the tribulation when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. And additionally, these parables explain Israel's future judgment and entrance into God's kingdom. We looked at the fig tree parable. And the fig tree parable confirms that the tribulation signifies Jesus' coming return as king to judge the world. It also communicated three truths that ought to impact how we behave. The first truth is that God is in absolute control of history. The second truth is that God has a definite, unchanging plan for humanity. And the third truth is that God's word is eternal and immutable. Those three truths give us confidence. Confidence to know that the prophecies of Christ's coming, whether it's the rapture or seven years later with the return, will occur as planned. And furthermore, knowing these things, knowing that prophecy will be fulfilled, it ought to cause us to desire and strive to live holy and godly. Last time we looked at three more parables. We saw the three parables, the two men and the two women, the thief in the night, and the good and evil slaves. Those three parables confirm Jesus' return at the end of the tribulation will be unexpected. Jesus revealed there that no one, including the heavenly angels, and himself during his incarnation, knows the day or the hour of his return. He uses Noah's flood as an example, and he explains that those living during the tribulation are going to go about their regular lives without any thought of coming judgment. The two men and the two women parable disclosed to us that when Jesus returns as judge, Unbelievers will be taken and cast into hell. While believers will be left behind 
and welcomed into the Messianic kingdom. The thief in the night discloses that Jesus' coming will catch many unaware, just as a thief breaking into a house during the night. The good and evil slave affirms that there are two types of Jewish people living during the tribulation, those that are redeemed and those that are unredeemed. And those three parables together teach us to, be, number one, be ready to stand before the judge. Two, be alert for his coming. Three, be mindful of our behavior. And four, be wise and faithful. And five, let's be sure we're performing the duties God has entrusted to us. Now, building upon the theme that he presented in the parable of the good and evil slaves... Jesus now presents the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, 1-13. The parable of the ten virgins. In the good and evil slave parable, you'll remember that Jesus is the master. Israel, the Jewish people, are his servants. And his servants had one job to do, and that job is to preach the law and the gospel. The law to show them their need for a Savior. The gospel to show them what the Savior will do for them. And during the tribulation, there will be good slaves. That is, redeemed, regenerated Jewish people who will be feeding others with God's word. But there will be another group that instead of spreading God's word, the evil slaves, the unredeemed, unregenerate Jewish people, will mistreat their own people. And align themselves with people like the Antichrist who are under the curse of God's judgment. And now in the ten virgin parables, Jesus tells us the judgment that is coming upon the regenerate and unregenerate Jewish people when he returns at his coming. I'd like to read from Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33, or 20, yeah, 33 to 38. Ezekiel chapter 20. Verses 33 to 28. Because that prophecy is important to understand this parable. In Ezekiel's prophecy, he foretells when and how Israel will be judged as a nation by Christ at the end of the tribulation. The prophet writes this. He says, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, I will be a king over you. I will bring you out, he says, he's talking to Israel, I will bring Israel out from the people, from the nations, and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me, and I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, and they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. And so we see here that when Jesus returns, there's going to be a judgment on Israel. We've already seen previously, he's going to send his angels to gather his elect, to gather the Jewish people from the four parts of the earth, wherever they're scattered. He's going to bring them there to Jerusalem where Jesus will be. And he is going to judge them either as righteous and redeemed or unrighteous and unredeemed. They'll pass under the rod of judgment. Now Israel's judgment occurs after the tribulation. 
The tribulation is the last seven years of, the pre of this present age. During the second half of the tribulation, you'll recall that John writes in Revelation 12, 6, that the woman, that Israel, will flee into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that she will be nourished for 1,260 days. John confirms in that text that the length of the second half of the tribulation is 1,260 days. Now, Keep in mind, the Jewish calendar, the lunar calendar, is, is comprised of 360 days. Okay? Jewish calendar is 360 days. Divided over 12 months of 30 days each. So if I take 1,260 days and I divide that by 360 days, I come up with 42 months, or what? Three and one half years. The tribulation ends 1,260 days after the abomination of desolation. Matthew 24, 29, so Jesus says immediately after the tribulation. So the tribulation ends 1,260 days after the abomination of desolation caused by the Antichrist. Immediately after that, the world will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now we know that the specific day and hour of the tribulation's end and Jesus' return in the cloud is unknown at the moment. But it is clear from Scripture that you can begin counting from the day of the abomination of desolation, 1260 days, to the end of the tribulation and Christ's return. Now in Daniel 12 we have another interesting verse here. Spoken by Gabriel the angel. He says in Daniel chapter 12 verse 10. Many will be purged, purified and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly. None of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished. And the abomination of desolation is set up. There will be 1,200 and... 90 days. Purged, purified, refined. Terms of judgment upon the righteous. Daniel reveals none of the wicked will understand. That's a statement that Jesus has been confirming all through these parables. They do not know. They don't understand. But why 1,290 days? 1,260 days after the abomination desolation, the tribulation ends, Christ returns. 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation, the judgment of Israel occurs. Put that together. Israel's judgment occurs 30 days after the end of the tribulation and Christ returns. So he returns, 30 days later, he judges the nation of Israel. The redeemed Jews will be left behind and ushered into the millennial kingdom as part of new redeemed national Israel. The unredeemed Jews will be taken and cast into hell for a thousand years awaiting judgment at the great white throne. So return of Christ, 1260 days after 
the abomination of desolation, the judgment of Israel, 1290 days or 30 days after Christ, the tribulation ends and Christ returns. And that brings us now to this parable of the ten virgins. The first part of the ten virgins parable focuses upon the virgins' backdrop. The backdrop in Matthew 25, verse 1. Let's look at the backdrop. The virgins' backdrop. Jesus begins and he says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Notice, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. That word then, toda, indicates that this parable is connected to the coming of Jesus as judge. It's a temporal term. Now the focus of this parable is what? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, synonymous with the same phrase, the kingdom of God. Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven some 32 times in this gospel. The other gospel accounts use the phrase kingdom of God. Now keep in mind Matthew's primary readers are Jewish. And Jewish people would not invoke the name of God. So they referred to, they replaced the name God with heaven. So kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same kingdom. But God's kingdom, let's understand here, a little bit of review from uh, previous messages here on Matthew, but God's kingdom is the eternal rule of God. But it exists in three manifestations. Number one, the kingdom of God is universal. That means everything ultimately falls under God's kingdom. Number two, there is a spiritual aspect to God's kingdom. God's kingdom is spiritual. And it is comprised only of those who repent their sin and believe in the gospel. But there is also a physical aspect. The kingdom of God is, or the kingdom of heaven is physical. You see, Jesus, when he returns, is going to physically establish his kingdom on earth. When? After the tribulation. Only those who are part of the spiritual kingdom are going to inherit the physical aspect of the kingdom. As Jesus explains back in the Sermon on the Mount. Notice again Jesus says here the kingdom of heaven is comparable or will be comparable to ten virgins. Now the word comparable there, homoio, means they share similar characteristics. There are similar characteristics between the kingdom of heaven and these ten virgins. Again, we have that temporal term then telling us the events of this parable occur when after the tribulation when Jesus returns as judge the kingdom of heaven we're talking what part of the kingdom of heaven what aspect we're talking about the kingdom of heaven being established physically here on earth so the physical establishment of God's kingdom on earth is going to share some similarities with these ten virgins Particularly, the reputation of these ten virgins. Notice, according to Jesus, these ten virgins took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, I've got a couple questions. Number one, why would ten virgins go to meet a bridegroom? I mean, is this man marrying ten women? 
And what is the significance of these lamps? Well, I believe in order to answer those questions and to understand this text, we need some understanding of the ancient Jewish wedding ceremony. The ancient Jewish wedding ceremony is comprised of three phases. There is the shurikin, or the mutual commitment phase. There's the aruzin, or the betrothal phase. And then there's the nisuin, or the marriage phase. Let's begin with the shadukin. The shadukin. This is, a, is when the legal contract is drawn up between the bride and groom's fathers. Understand, at this point, the potential bride and groom have no involvement in the process. They are not dating, they have not been dating, and there are no romantic feelings involved in the Jewish wedding ceremony. Father's groom, or the groom, the father of the groom, the father bride get together, draw up a contract to marry their son and daughter to one another. The kids have no say in the issue. The groom's father pays the bride's father dowry. Following the signing of the contract, the bride and the groom are baptized. The next phase is the arusin or the betrothal period. Betrothal is the first stage of the actual marriage in Jewish culture. We usually lasts for a year before the actual wedding night and is very legal, more legal than our modern engagement. And so a betrothal could only be dissolved via a divorce. Now, betrothal begins when the bride and groom exchange vows in front of their family. That's it, just the family. And they are now legally bound as husband and wife, but for the following year, they cannot live together nor engage in sexual relations. During this betrothal period, the groom returns back to his father's house and prepares a home for his new wife, and the bride begins gathering the necessary items she needs for her wedding, and marriage. The final phase is the nisuin, or the marriage. Now, the bride knows that after the year of betrothal, the bridegroom will come for her. But she does not know the day or the hour that he is coming for her. The groom doesn't even know it. Only the groom's father knows the day and the hour that he will send his son to go and collect his wife. And so the bride and her bridesmaids prepared lamps because the bridegroom often came at night. So when the father sounded the shofar or the trumpet, his son and the groom would go to collect his wife. And along with his groomsmen, the groom would travel to the bride's house, collect his bride, collect the bridesmaids, and parade through the streets announcing the coming wedding feast. And once at the groom's father's house, the couple would stand under the hoopah and exchange their final vows. Again, only in front of the family and two witnesses. After the ceremony, one of the groomsmen places the bride's hands on the groom's hand. This is the first time in a year that they've had any physical contact. They would then be left alone for yakut, or the consummation of their marriage. Following Yakud, the wedding feast occurred and lasted about a week. 
Several guests, including the groomsmen and the bridesmaid, attended the wedding feast. Now, based on that Jewish wedding culture, let's draw several conclusions from an examination of Scripture. Who is the bride? The church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, Paul says, I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Paul's depicting himself here as a father to the Corinthian believers. When they received the gospel he brought to them, they became betrothed to Jesus Christ as a chaste, pure virgin. And what was the dowry paid for the bride? But Christ's own blood and death. But Paul writes in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if the church is the bride of Christ, then the bridegroom is who? Not other than Christ himself. In John 14, verse 2 and 3, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. You see, God the Father arranged the marriage of His Son to the church. Now remember, once that arrangement is made, what happens? The bride and the groom have to be baptized. Jesus began his earthly ministry by going to John to be what? Baptized. So I need to be baptized. To be the groom. And he commands believers after they repent and believe the gospel to go and what? Be baptized. Again, to identify them as what? The bride. Well, Jesus has now returned back to his father's home. And what's he doing there? He's in his father's home preparing a place for us, his bride. The church. And at a point known only to the Father, he is going to sound the trumpet and his son will travel to earth to collect his bride. We call this the rapture of the church. At the rapture, Jesus will wed himself to his bride. We will return with him to heaven where the yakud or the consummation of the marriage will occur. The marriage of Christ and the church is revealed in Revelation 19, verse 7 and 8. Listen to the words John writes. He says, let us rejoice and be glad, give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. But now listen to verse 9. Revelation 19.9 Then Jesus said to John, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Remember, the marriage ceremony is a very private ceremony. But the wedding feast, the marriage supper, is a more open time to many guests. And those who are invited to the marriage supper are blessed. The bridegroom is Christ. The bride is the church. However, the ten virgins are not the bride. Why? Because the church is raptured before the tribulation. The focus of these parables is on the status of the people, mainly the Jewish people, living at the end of the tribulation when Jesus returns. And so the virgins here are not the church. The, the ten virgins here are Israel. Notice that it's 
ten virgins. Why ten? Because in Jewish culture, ten is the number of completeness or wholeness. You see, the ten virgins represent the whole Jewish nation. The whole entire nation is represented in that statement. And they're virgins. Virgins, Parthenos, women, young women of marriageable age who have had no sexual relations. Now, we understand the bride in Jewish culture would certainly be expected to be a virgin. But also her bridesmaids had to be virgins. Okay, Bridesmaids couldn't be married women. They had to be young virgin girls as well. So the ten virgins represent the Jewish nations, or the Jewish nation, and they are the bridesmaid to the church, the bride. The fact that the bridesmaids are Israel, and the church is the bride, supports that Israel and the church are what? Two distinct groups. But God has a plan for both. Now, as culturally dictated, the bridesmaids took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. The word lamps here, lampas. We get our English word lamp from the Greek term lampas. All they did, drop the A-S on the end, and you have what? Lamp, okay? Now, a lamp here is not the word for the small handheld clay lamp, but rather a torch. These torches were long poles wrapped at one end with rags soaked in oil. And since the bridegroom often came at night, the, tor the lit torches identified the wedding party, but also provided light as they traveled from the bride's home back to the groom's. The bridesmaids possess torches, which implies they're waiting for the groom to come. Everyone at the wedding party is required to possess a lamp. By the way, if you don't have a lit lamp, you can't get into the wedding feast. Anybody that shows up at the wedding feast without a lit lamp is considered a wedding crasher. Now let's look at the second part of the ten virgin parable. Because this now focuses on the reputation of the virgins. The reputation of the virgins. Matthew 25 verse 2 to 5. Five of them were foolish. Five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps, now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Again, ten virgins represents the whole nation of Israel when Christ returns. Each of them possesses a lamp, implying that they are prepared and waiting for the bridegroom, Jesus, to appear. However, Jesus says, five of them were foolish, five were prudent. Now, the word foolish, moros, it's where we get our English word moron, okay? Five of them were morons, Jesus says. M-O-R-O-S, moras, moron, M-O-R-O-N. Okay, same word. By calling them morons, he says they are devoid of wisdom and sound judgment. That's what a moron is. Jesus says, here's, how, how, here's an example of their lack of common sense. The foolish took their lamps, but took no oil with them. Dummies. The prudent... Phronomos means to exercise sound judgment and common sense. Five had common sense. The prudent took oil in flasks with their lamps. So we have two sets of bridesmaids. Both sets of bridesmaids give the appearance of preparedness. 
They all each possess lamps, but it becomes evidence by the lack of oil that one group is not genuinely prepared for the bridegroom's coming. Furthermore, their lack of oil showed a lack of respect for the groom, who in this case represents the Messiah. Now let's ask another question. What is the importance of oil? What is the importance of oil? In the Hebrew Scriptures, oil is used to anoint the prophet, the priest, and the kings. But notice this. It's a type, a picture of the Holy Spirit. So when a prophet, priest, or king was being anointed with oil, it was signifying that the Holy Spirit was coming upon them. Quoting the future Messiah, Messiah in Isaiah 61.1, the prophet says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Notice the parallel, the contrast, between the Holy Spirit and the anointing of the Messiah with oil for service. Now, oil also has a few other usages besides anointing. Oil can be used for cleansing, for comforting, and for illuminating. Again, it typifies the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is the oil that cleanses us from sin. Titus 3.5, He saved us according to His mercy by the washing, the cleansing of regeneration and renewing by who? The Holy Spirit. Like oil, the Holy Spirit provides comfort. Jesus says in John 14, 26, the helper, that's the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. But he's going to be like oil, he's going to comfort you. And the Holy Spirit, like oil, also illuminates. He illuminates the scriptures, enabling us to see and understand them. Paul prays in Ephesians 1.17 for the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. So the oil is the Holy Spirit. So let's recap. The groom is Christ, the bride is the church, the bridesmaids are Israel, and the oil is the Holy Spirit. The bridesmaids possessing oil for their lamps represent the Jewish people in the tribulation who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, that needs a little bit of explanation. Because you say, well, wait a minute, I thought the Holy Spirit leaves. Yes, he does leave. Two, two, two of the Holy Spirit's ministries cease during the tribulation. But when the Holy Spirit descended in AD 29 on the day of Pentecost, he began his ministry of permanently indwelling believers. And that is a fulfillment of the promise given in the new covenant of Jeremiah 33. Okay, Jeremiah 33, initially given to Israel, but expanded to include Gentiles through Jesus Christ, promises that those who are redeemed will all be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So, beginning with the rapture, and forever onward, the Holy Spirit will indwell all believers. Now, before the tribulation, we know that the rapture is going to take the church out of here. At which point, two of the Holy Spirit's ministries cease. His restraining of sin ceases. And his baptism of believers ceases. The end of the Holy Spirit's ministry of restraining sin allows the Antichrist to be revealed. And the Holy Spirit's baptism, which places believers into the body of Christ, the universal church ends 
You see, the church has a birth date and an end date. The church begins at Pentecost, because that's when the baptism of the Holy Spirit began, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes to an end at the rapture. He'll still continue to save people. He'll still continue to indwell those who are saved. But only those saved between Pentecost and the rapture will be part of the church. The bride of Christ. Okay? Again, another important aspect to understand. The bride is out of here at the rapture. Only those people baptized by the Spirit are considered the bride. But, Believers saved during the tribulation. Gentiles saved. Jewish people saved. During the tribulation will be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now notice the bridesmaids possessing no oil represent the unregenerate Jewish people. The Jewish people living in the tribulation not indwelled by the Holy Spirit. They're, they're dressed as bridesmaids. They have torches. But their lack of oil or their lack of the Holy Spirit proves they are not redeemed. They're not sealed. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.5 that in the last days there will be people holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. That's these people. They outwardly appear to be religious. They appear to be looking for the Messiah. But inwardly they're dead in trespass and sin. Jesus adds, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Now, we can't knock the people. Understand. It's midnight when he comes. They're drowsy. It's natural. They're going to fall asleep. But what is this delay? This delay of the bridegroom refers to the elapsed time between the first and second coming. The delay, though, is only from our perspective, the human perspective, because from the divine perspective, listen, the second coming of Christ is going to occur at the appointed, predetermined time from eternity past. But they become drowsy, they began to sleep. Please do not interpret this as being, they're, they're spiritually careless. That's not the case here. Again, it's a late hour. It's only natural that you eventually are going to fall asleep. What we can learn from this statement is this. The ten, or the, excuse me, the five prudent bridesmaids were well prepared and could afford to sleep. The foolish bridesmaids should have used the delay, though, to procure the needed oil. Let's go to the third and final part of the ten virgin parable, which focuses upon the bridegroom. The bridegroom. Matthew 25, 6 to 13. But at midnight, there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers, buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Notice what Jesus says here. At midnight there is a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. The bridegroom's arrival at midnight underscores Christ's return will occur at a time and an hour when he's not expected. 
Asleep, the bridesmaids are awakened by the announcement of his arrival and the command to go out and meet him. Following the command, all the virgins, the five foolish, the five prudent, rose and trimmed their lamps. Again, the lamp is a torch, the long pole wrapped in rags soaked in oil. Now, trimming the torch means that they're clipping off the ragged edges. But Jesus reveals here that the foolish bridesmaids ask the prudent ones, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. You see, without oil, the rags wrapped around the pole would quickly burn out long before they arrived at the groom's house. Now, let's keep in mind, these five bride, foolish bridesmaids was not, it wasn't that they were unaware that they lacked oil. It's not that they lacked time to get the oil. The point is, they didn't care enough to procure the needed oil before the bridegroom arrived. The prudent bridegroom, or the prudent bridesmaids reply, there will not be enough for us, and you too, go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Now, I've seen some commentators respond, well, they're being selfish. No, they're not being selfish, let me explain. They had enough oil sufficient for their own journey. And the point Jesus is making here is this. You cannot transfer the Holy Spirit from yourself to another person. The Holy Spirit only indwells individuals who on their own initiative accept the gift of salvation and through repentance and faith in the gospel. There's a great illustration of this concept in Acts chapter 8. You see, in Acts chapter 8, Philip proclaimed the gospel in Samaria. Many believed, including one guy named Simon the sorcerer. However, his belief was not the same as the other Samaritans. You see, when Peter and John arrived in Samaria, they prayed for the Holy Spirit to indwell all these believers. Well, seeing this, Simon the sorcerer approaches Peter. And he offers to purchase this authority from Peter to grant the Holy Spirit to other people. Disgusted, Peter declares, not only can Simon not purchase the Holy Spirit, but he does not truly possess the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly the case here. Jesus continues the parable saying, while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. So rebuffed by the prudent bridesmaids, the foolish bridesmaids went to purchase oil from the merchants. By the way, this really illustrates what morons they are. It's nighttime. It's midnight. And they're going to go to town to try to buy some oil. There isn't one merchant opened at midnight. Foolish. Foolish morons. The bridegroom arrives at the bride's house, but finds only the five prudent bridesmaids. Guess what? He doesn't wait. He doesn't wait for the five foolish to return. Instead, he takes the prudent bridesmaids and returns to his home to attend the wedding feast. The foolish heard the announcement of the bridegroom, but they weren't there when he arrived. Now let's recall that when Jesus returns to earth following the tribulation, the whole world will see his coming in the sky. His coming will serve as the announcement that he is coming for Israel, the bridesmaids. And interestingly, if you recall from the beginning of this message, his coming occurs 1,260 days 
after the abomination of desolation and the judgment of Israel is going to occur 1,290 days after the abomination. In other words, they've got a 30-day window from the announcement to the arrival to get their oil. To repent of their sin and believe the gospel and receive the Holy Spirit. But it's just not that important. Every Jewish person alive at the end of the tribulation is going to see that announcement. They're, again, they're going to have ample time to procure that oil. They're going to have time to repent, believe the gospel, be indwelled. But sadly, when Jesus returns to earth, he will find only a portion of Jewish people prepared to meet him who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And only the prudent bridesmaids, only those Jewish believers, will be welcomed into the wedding feast. And what is the wedding feast? It is the marriage supper of the Lamb that occurs in the early days of the millennial kingdom. As John wrote in Revelation 19.9, I'll read it again. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb is the celebration of the church and, and Christ wed together. And the invited guests here include a group of bridesmaids who are redeemed Israelites, redeemed Jewish people alive at the end of the tribulation. The bridegroom is bride, the bridesmaids arrive at the feast. But Jesus says, and the door was shut. You know, I can't help but think of the flood narrative here. There was an opportunity for all to enter the ark before the flood arrived. But only the, the only righteous people aboard were Noah and his family. Genesis 7, 7 verse 16 says that after Noah and his family were aboard the ark, the Lord closed the door behind them. All those outside the ark after the door was closed perished. And so too anyone outside the wedding feast when the door to the banquet hall is shut, will perish. Jesus concludes the parable saying, Later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. You see, they finally arrived and they found themselves locked out. Despite their pleas, despite their begging to be let in, he says, I do not know you. And I can't help but think of Matthew chapter 7. Verse 22 and 23. Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, that day in Matthew 7, 22 to 23 is the day of judgment that occurs when Jesus comes as judge. Like the foolish bridesmaids locked out of the feast, there will be many who will stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and cry out, Lord, Lord, let us in! And just as the bridegroom tells the foolish bridesmaids, Jesus will tell them in that day, I do not know you. In other words, he says, I don't know your name. Your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 20.15, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. So Jesus, by telling them, I don't know you, he's saying, I don't know your name, he's pronouncing judgment against them, which results in what? Them being cast into hell and the lake of fire. And so Jesus declares to all, be on the alert, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Be on the alert, Gregorio, that imperative command telling us, be watchful, be mindful. 
the day and the hour is the second coming of Christ. Because the precise time of Jesus' return as judge is unknown, those living in the tribulation should be prepared. But my friends, listen, we might escape the tribulation, but you know what? The rapture is imminent. It could happen any time. It could happen, we don't know when. But we know this, it will happen. And because he will come for us as his bride, we too better be prepared. While the ten virgins represent Israel at the end of the tribulation, my friends, there's a very important lesson for us too. The lesson is this, the importance of possessing the Holy Spirit. All ten virgins were dressed for the wedding feast. All ten possessed lamps, but only five had oil to light their lamps. You know, today there are many who claim to be believers. Many who looked apart, but could be just like these virgins. These five foolish virgins, lacking oil, lacking the Holy Spirit. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 8 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to God. You see, a lack of oil or a lack of the Holy Spirit really is a evidence for the lack of genuine faith. Anyone wise will examine themselves, which we all ought to do. Do I have the Holy Spirit? Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit indwelling me, living inside of me? Do I have that oil to light my lamp? Now I would suggest, as you look at your life, if you're not shining as a light, there may be a good reason why. Maybe your light's not shining to the world because you've got no oil. You don't have the Holy Spirit. So if your light's not shining, and you find out, hey, I don't have the Holy Spirit, then I suggest you need to come to Jesus moment. You need to come in repentance and genuine faith. Crying out before it's too late, let me in. But if you're foolish, if you just don't care, if you've got a careless attitude, if the lack of the Holy Spirit doesn't bother you, that's fine. But understand this. It's going to cost you an eternity with Jesus. May everyone examine themselves and may everyone make sure they have oil for their lamps. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we come before you, considering the words of this parable, Father, first and foremost, I need to thank you that you haven't given up on Israel, that you still have a plan. Because, Father, if you give up on them, you could give up on us. But because you keep your commandment or your covenant with them, you'll keep your covenant with us. And I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, that we're the bride. I thank you, Father, that they're the bridesmaids. That in your eternal wisdom, you created a people uh, and a plan and brought this all together. And that you've chosen to reveal it to us. But, Father, I would also pray, Lord, that each and every person hearing this parable will consider whether they're prepared whether they're wise or whether they're foolish, whether, whether they have oil or not, whether they have the Holy Spirit or not. And Father, Lord, if there's someone listening who doesn't possess the Holy Spirit, who looks at their life and sees no light shining, no testimony to a lost and dying world of what Christ has done, they're not shining the light of Christ, and Father, may they understand and recognize that's because they don't possess the Holy Spirit. And may that be a moment when they come in repentance and faith to you. Father, for those of us who've made that a settled issue, for those of us who see our light is shining, we're confident that we possess the Holy Spirit, we have that oil. Father, I pray that we'd also examine ourselves lest we quench 
the Holy Spirit or grieve Him. Father, let us not put out our light. Let us not dampen our light by cutting off its supply to the oil of the Holy Spirit by sin. And so, Father, if there's anything we have done or not done that we ought to do or should not do, that is in turn quenched the Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd, Father, forgive us and get the spigot turned back on so that the oil will flow freely and we will give forth light. Oh, Father, I pray that we will be prepared, whether today, tomorrow, or ten years from now, while we still draw breath, may we live each and every day anticipating the rapture, anticipating our wedding day, and we will be joined to our bride, our groom, your son, Jesus Christ. And may we glorify him until he comes. And I know we will glorify him when he comes. And we pray this in his name. Amen.